Hi, my name's Justin Webb, and this is Uncommon. Uncommon is a production by Neural, an agency that helps both brands and talent tell their story. To learn more, just visit neural.com. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E.com. My guest this week, Justin Webb, co-founder and executive chairman of AgriWeb. We were just chatting before about the family office in Tanair. I thought uh, somehow I'd be picking you up doing this interview out on the station, um, Eddington Station, that is, and I was going to ask you how the drive was. Um, <laughs> and, then I real- and then I realized we were doing a remote interview. I was like, oh, okay. Um, um, yeah, well, actually, we could have uh, – it would have been far trickier to try and do um, an interview while I was driving – the 14 and a half hours from my house in Sydney down to down to our family farm in Western Victoria yeah. with a four-year-old and a two-year-old in the back, which was blissful. I can tell you, the hours <laughs> just flew by. Is, um, that a, is that a regular occurrence? Yeah, we, we, I used to do it a fair bit when, you know, pre-children and, and pre-wife. Um, and it was a great, great period of time to really, you know, be, be on your own with your thoughts on the Hume Highway. Um, okay. But uh, uh, it probably won't be as common an occurrence, I think, uh, <laughs> given the, the, the children's affinity for sitting dead still for 15 hours. Yeah. Uh, I got a feeling that iPads would come in handy. Yeah, that or <laughs> any kind of medication. Yeah. <laughs> so um, do you still hang, hang about or chat to the Winklevi? <laughs> uh, great. That is a great one too. Yeah, Cameron and Tyler are still, uh, I consider them very close friends. So for your listeners, the, the you know, now infamous Winklevosses from, from uh, you know, Facebook um, invention through to now cryptocurrency uh, pioneers and all things in between, according to opinion. Uh, <laughs> Cameron and Tyler and I rode together at Harvard. We actually were friends before then. Um, we grew up in the same town in Connecticut and, um, and we were very close going through. And then, you know, I knew about and was vaguely part of the, the, um, the, the narrative of, of when they were coming up with the concept um, just because they were, you know, excitedly talking about their idea. And, and really it was the origins of Facebook were as a dating app um, for, uh, for Ivy League students. Um, so, you know, I, I think the Zuck has definitely grown it far beyond what it was at its origins, but um, I think the where the result landed was was pretty pretty fair for both sides. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think in that um, movie, although it's a popular reference, it's, it's pretty clear that um, he was in the wrong there. And I think uh, nonetheless, what they've done, like having dealings with Gemini, uh, it's pretty amazing what they've been able to do. It just shows almost that um, they are quite switched on operators. You know, the fact that they've been able yeah. to do that with Gemini, essentially the biggest there in the crypto space. Um, yeah, for sure. and, you know, <laughs> it's, it, it takes, takes a lot of hoodspotter to, to turn around and they had a, yes, they had a big settlement from Facebook, but to turn around and invest, you know, 10, $12 million into a cryptocurrency long before it was it was ever something, right? That's yeah, that's that's a pretty ballsy move, um, and uh, you know I think then what Tyler said a few times is um, you know we we don't necessarily want to be mining for gold, we want to be selling gold pants, and mm. you know, there is a there's some real wisdom 
obviously in that archaic phrase, around the concept of how they are driving for regulation. They're actually driving to make cryptocurrency more legitimate. And I always sort of find it quite funny because the, the label of crypto is very much like anti-establishment and, and you know, like I'm going to go outside the man kind of a concept. But the biggest holders of crypto are in fact like the FBI because they confiscated <laughs> yeah. Silk Road yeah. and these yeah. two like super preppy guys from Greenwich, Connecticut and Harvard. So um, I, I think that there's, you know, it's an incredibly exciting and pioneering time for cryptocurrency in terms of people gambling their, you know, their future lives and fortunes on it. I wouldn't necessarily condone that, but um, I do think that the people that are building platforms to facilitate it becoming more mainstream is, you know, that's a really commendable and exciting space. At the moment. So you mentioned Connecticut earlier. So you're Australian, but you grew up in the UK and then you had this time at Harvard in the US. What did your parents do that yeah. made you move around the world? <laughs> they just didn't like me. Um, so I, I had a kind of this this, this strangely and um, unusually international upbringing because my father's job, he was involved in, in building uh, what became a very, very large multinational business um, that you know, spanned across basically every continent. And we were moving nearly every three years. So rather than, particularly as I got to more school age, rather than move me every, you know, with them every time they moved, I went to boarding school in England when I was seven, eight, eight years old. And they kind of moved around, um, around me. So my home was wherever they happened to be at that time. And so thus I spent you know, boarding school from eight to 18 uh, over in England and lived a very kind of Harry Potter upbringing um, in, 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 in some of those very stereotypical schools over there. But, um, you know, some of my oldest friends and it was a great experience. Do you, do you have siblings at all? I do. I've got, I've got three older sisters um, okay. but, uh, who are much older than I am. Um, so they'd uh, kind of moved on from school and, and were getting on with their lives by the time I was going through all this. Wow. Do, do you have like a sort of early inception moment of memory for you as a kid? I, I do. And funnily enough, one of my earliest memories is actually getting off an airplane, moving from one country to another. Um, wow. uh, it was um, arriving back in Australia um, and you know, we had lived in Canada for a little bit and, and I was only two or three, yeah, two or maybe three years old. And I was getting off a plane and I remember being, terrified of the, of the noise and the wind and, and yeah. all that sort of stuff. But it is funny that my earliest memory was of, of being in transit. Um, <laughs> I don't know, don't know quite how that's influenced. I'm sure that we could spend a bit of time on a, on a sofa somewhere and unpack <laughs> that. But uh, yeah, that's what I've got. Do you, when you think about um, you growing up, was there a particular lesson that you've sort of held with you to this day from either of your parents? Look, I think... It's it's an interesting vein that we're going on this trans you know transient as it were lifestyle, and my parents always worked very hard to kind of make sure I had you know, a home that was it felt like a home when I came to it and felt established. It didn't feel transient, but I think that the lesson that I perhaps you know picked up indirectly from from moving so much is that the world can be a small place. Mm. Um, you know, I've got. My closest friends would be scattered across you know, North America, England, and Australia. And it's not, they're not any closer or further away because I live further away from them. It's, um, 
it is the world now can be a small place. You can, you know, delight in the different experiences that you have, and it doesn't have to be a deliberate. I'm going to travel. You can just exist in this sort of global sense, and and I think because of my experience growing up, that's probably the thing that mom and dad really really have left with me. Interesting, yeah, because you're sort of um, the the generation just above me, similar age to my cousin. I think um, Gen X. I'm millennial, right? So you're at that age where you've just started having well, no, that's just kids. insulting. Yeah. <laughs> and I just wonder like, how would you have kept in contact with all these people? Like uh, I grew up in the MSN era, I think um, MSN, but also uh, there was another messaging tool at the time. Oh, AOL instant messenger. That's it. That's it. Yeah. A- AOL IM was like the, um, the big tool at the time. So um, definitely that was exactly, that's how I learned to touch type in, um, so, you know, speaking of age, when I was at school, we used to submit, you know, papers and exams and all sorts of things in fountain pen, which might say more about the English schooling system than it does about, about technology at the time. But anyway, I landed at Harvard and all of a sudden, you know, like day one, you know, term one, class one, it was like, right, you've got to, you know, submit this paper. And yeah. it was whatever it was, you know, 5,000 words but typed. And I was like, well, hang on, this is going to take me a while because I didn't know how to touch type at all. And so AIM um, was the thing that, you know, as we all got to know each other, and and it's funny, it's drawing on another item you mentioned here, like having the Facebook, um, which was the freshman year actual physical book that had everyone's phone numbers and pictures. So really? we met them in the in the dining hall. You could go back and be like, oh, that's where they live and that's their phone number and I can connect with them. And you used to write in the, the handle. And so uh, that's, you know, drawing, drawing a fair bit of archaic <laughs> um, uh, experiences. But yeah. Um, that's so funny. So you grew up in the UK, studied there. You get to about 18, you finish high school in the year 2000, attend Harvard undergrad, economics and maths. And then uh, later on, you've got your MBA that, was completed at the SEDS business school. So for, for those who don't know, that is at Oxford. So why finance? I would honestly love to say that I had more um, you know, cognitive influence on, on why finance and, or a lifelong desire to, to work on Wall Street, but I didn't. Um, you know, in the 2004, I, in fact, I shunned the whole kind of internship thing. I worked in advertising one year out of college and then I worked, uh, it was actually at Huggies Pull-Ups, which I, I, I remind my wife regularly when we're making decisions about brands. <laughs> and, um, I, I, and I rode my bicycle from the West Coast to the East Coast of America with a couple of friends the, the year that we were all supposed to be doing internships. So why am I saying this? I think, you know, for people that are listening that are at that stage, I didn't have this sort of plan to go and execute. And, and when I graduated, it was 2004 and it was kind of the height of the, you know, the, the boom time in Wall Street at, you know, pre the financial crisis. And frankly, they were throwing a lot of money at those of us graduating, particularly those with, with um, mathematical degrees and numerical facility. And so I just followed the money. I went in with friends and, um, and, and went and worked there. And, and actually it taught me something in, in working in that. I mean, you call it a kind of pedigree career, which is very kind of you, but I, I think it's something I almost shun. I, you know, I worked at Lehman Brothers and I worked in subordinated debts, like the, the um, 
creation and trading of it. Um, mm. So these were you know, esoteric debt products that were extremely complex and multifaceted. And you know, I was the numbers person with other people that would like create this stuff that doesn't even exist anymore. <laughs> now, I'm 23 years old and I'm getting paid just crazy amounts of money, you know, creating products that were trading at half a billion dollars on the first day of their, you know, roll out to the market, surely that's got to be alarm bells in some, yeah. you know, in people's minds, in regulatory minds. Like, you know, it's all, <laughs> I'm not trying to say it's not my fault, but I'm 23 years old. I'm going out to go to drink with my friends at the local bar right after this. I, I don't have this like full cognition of what are the impacts globally of, of you know, mispricing and misma- mismanagement of risk. And I think, um, I hope that that is something that perhaps is, is, is evolving in the minds of regulators. It's what I wrote my application essay to Oxford on saying, you know, it, it was entitled, it's my fault. Um, but I do fear that this, when you say pedigree in finance, you know, let's just walk through a little bit what happened there. Someone who came from top universities and had a facility to create a lot of these products is, is up against a regulatory environment that cannot pay as much, that has to recruit from, you know, perhaps less formal skill sets. And they're the ones that have to kind of, you know, clamp down on what we're doing. I just think that asymmetry is is set up to fail. And, and I, I would argue that I see it happening again, right? Don't tell me that in in five, 10 years time, whenever the bubble does pop, we're not all going to be laughing and being like, oh my God, who thought that SPACs were a good idea? <laughs> and and whereas we all look back and be like, oh, collateralized debt obligations were crazy. Yeah. And it's, it, 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 it's, you know, history repeating. And so I do hope that we can learn a little bit from history um, and support some of the regulatory stuff. I think we slowly do. It's always interesting to see movies like The Big Short and uh, there's that, classic scene of they go to vegas for the um the cdo sort of conference and um the the sec staff are there they're like similar they've graduated from um you know harvard or wharton or something like that and they're trying to get jobs at the banks that they're trying to regulate which is so funny and it just shows what the environment can really be like and i think i think largely when it comes to regulation the regulators did they did have to integrate some things that that has made it harder to do certain things in the industry. I mean, we've just had the Royal Banking Commission, whether some of that stuff gets passed through with something else. I think commissions is probably one of the biggest issues in the industry. Yeah. But I reckon we could talk about that for the entire episode and, if we wanted and to. happily so. Like, you know, yeah, some of that stuff, like you watch the Volcker Rule be diluted, the Sarbanes-Oxley yeah. Act be diluted. And these are fundamental differences. And then you also look at the misalignment um, between you know, asset managers. Not many people know about, say, BlackRock or, or Vanguard, but BlackRock's managing nearly $8 trillion of everyone that's listening's pension. And yeah. they have one risk system that manages nearly $20 trillion a day. Yeah. And yet BlackRock exists outside, largely outside of what they call a, a systematically critical financial institution. So they are outside a lot of the regulatory and they don't have to hold any cash on the balance sheet, which effectively means like it's, you know, they're not responsible for it. Mm. I, I think there's got to be misalignments there around how can we understand the implications of, of the financial system much beyond just, you know, the slick suit and, and the Wall Street movie? Um, because it, you know, it really, really can bring down global economies very quickly. 
you've obviously pulled some things from your time in the industry. I noticed in one of the episodes, uh, one of the, um, there's a presentation you did or an interview that you did and you spoke about how the focus on yield was pulled sort of into the foundation of AgriWeb. And there's a little story on that we can get into later, but it was in a nutshell looking at your own farm and thinking, wow, this is a bit of hocus pocus, so to speak. But I was curious, were there any other major principles that you pulled into your businesses from that that time in the industry? Well, yeah, look, I mean, I think we've we've talked about either explicit or implicit kind of moral corruption. So um, I would say that the, the the inverse of that is something that I've held very true. Like when someone in your business becomes too distant from your customer, I think that it allows for misalignment of values and misalignment of, of what you're trying to do. And I think that's true in any industry. So to me, it's so important that we deeply align the customer with your team and your mission. And that means that it, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a first year engineer you go out and go to field days and meet farmers and stand in pastures and understand the way that they operate, that they interact with you know, their animals, their, their farm, their lives. Mm. Um, and, and I think that that could be beneficial across just about every industry. And, and I hope that that's something that um, you know, will drive a lot of the, the you know, call it the robustness of, of a future business. You found, I think your first entrepreneurial insight was was building the funds. I think it was very interesting reading about these sort of early quant-based hedge funds. Um, there was a story I found somewhere where you had 20 secondhand laptops together drawing like some insane amount of data from Bloomberg. And at one point you had like probably the largest supercomputer in Australia or something of, of that ilk. And I was just curious, like, you know, you built, two fund, fund manager businesses essentially and sold them to large businesses in Macquarie and BlackRock, I think it was, um, or it may have been Helix, sorry. West, Westpac, um, yeah. Uh, so why get out of that space? Why go into sort of the farming space? I, kn- I know the reason why, because you were looking at your own investment, but why was that pull greater than going back into finance when you'd had success there? Yeah, well, well, we'll dig into the, like why I grew up in a second, but the the why finance comes back to what you asked me of like why why finance at the beginning, and my answer, which was pretty weak, which is like I don't know, there was there was a check there, <laughs> and and so what happened with the hedge funds is basically I became a bit disillusioned with with working at at um, you know in Wall Street. It was awesome, um, but a buddy of mine who was working at a massive. Uh, hedge fund in Chicago. He loved baseball statistics and I loved horse racing. And the two of us had you know, both been studying at Harvard together and we were roommates there. Um, we started building our, um, an, you know, a, an investment model, or call it a gambling model, call it what it is. And um, actually someone who was in the industry in finance said, hey, uh, you know, have, you, have you guys thought about this from a quantitative hedge fund perspective? Would it work? And we said, yes. We said, well, why don't you move out to Australia where this, these don't exist yet and, um, and see how you can. So my 
friend of my friend and I were like, cool, yeah, let's go on an adventure. And we set up in Bondi, literally on Lamrock Avenue above a backpackers. And yeah, we had like 20 odd laptops wired together. And, and yes, Bloomberg came out and we're like, who, who are you guys drawing down? Like, I think we we're the second or third most consu- you know, consumer of data uh, through the API um, in, in Australia. And, um, uh, you know, it, I think when you say, why didn't you keep doing it or do it again or et cetera, both of us loved the application of mathematics to a noisy data set. Both of us loved the challenge of applying of applied mathematics, right? Of applying you know, that raw skill to the challenge of interpretation. It wasn't so much that I, you know, a finance world that enthralled us. Um, the, the 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 let's break it down. Like ultimately, we were only licensed to sell to. Uh, wholesale investors, which is kind of a, a you know pseudonym for loaded people. Yeah. So ultimately, we were making money for you know making wealthy people wealthier, and and okay, that's not the most entirely fulfilling like life mission. And so you know once we had built and sold, and and that challenge of like building a business, no matter where you are, is is really cool. And it was kind of fintech before fintech, right? And yeah, we had. The, we had a Cray computer that was you know, one of the only one of the fastest supercomputers in Australia, running on on Martin Place at, at one time, and it was it was really exciting. But it wasn't fulfilling from a mission perspective, and I think that's where my career, my entrepreneurial drive, was really leading me. Was like, how can I combine the desire to build a business and be engaged in creation, but also find it in a, in a very fulfilling space, mm-hmm. uh, and, and that's probably why you know the departure from there i i had gone back and and i actually ran a division for uh blackrock um as i mentioned here in australia and it was funny i i i always kind of use this quote as, as vaguely a kind of dark motivation because um uh, one of the, the bosses at BlackRock here in Australia has since been promoted more. So this is obviously like a, a good a good trait. Um, I had a very successful year, won, won this whole series of you know, new business. And, and he sat me down and said, look, you're doing really well, but the thing you need to concentrate on to advance here is internal stakeholder management. You need to focus less on the customer and more on, on internal politics. And that to me was just an anathema. It was like, how can you drive your career not based off of solving problems for clients? Not, and these are pensions. This is ultimately, it is, you know, firemen, policemen, health workers and their pensions that you are responsible for directing investment. How can you not be motivated by that? How do you instead drive towards, you know, smarming up the boss? And, And I hope that, you know, the kind of, creation of any business um, henceforth, both Agurib and anything else that might come down the, the, the pipeline. I hope I never say that or anyone in these businesses ever says something like that. Because yeah. if, we're, if you are entirely focused on solving a problem for the customer and relentlessly innovating on helping them more, I, I, I just think that is how a business remains robust. You, yes you, are you intrigued by this episode? If so, Go to our footer on the website, neuraalle.com, neural.com. We're going to give you an insight each week. It's going to be on business, marketing, or a topic that we covered in the episode at all. We'd love your support, and it would help us in developing the intellect around this series. But without going on too much longer, let's get back into this episode. 
I get a sense that if you were doing rowing, you must be a conscientious person to be waking up at that time and training that much. So making things ordered that are not ordered. And you can see how, you know, in 2013, you realize that the agriculture space is not ordered at all. There's a lot of decisions, assumptions based on, you know, XYZ guy found this works in his paddock over here. And it becomes obvious as to why you found this business. What were you able to realize from the data when initially starting out with this product that people didn't really fully get at all? It's a really interesting question. And and the way you framed it is fascinating, actually, because I haven't necessarily thought about it that way. And for your listeners, like my co-founder is also a, a, an oarsman. We met while rowing. Uh-huh. So perhaps it's something, and rowing as a sport um, is something where the the reward is very infrequent, as in there aren't that many races. It's certainly not very public. Like no. You'd be lucky if you have, you know, like, you know, two two old men and a lost dog at like the the national championships or the Olympic finals, and the training is the ratio of kind of training to racing is is crazy. They budget roughly you you train like four hours to every stroke you take um, in a, in a race, and so I think that you've got to enjoy the journey. Um, you've got to enjoy that quest for perfection. Um, you've got to enjoy making small improvements. Now, how am I going to draw this long bow? So to finally get to like where we are, why AgriWeb, what was it? And we've alluded to it a bit on this, on this discussion. You know, my father's side of the family came from five generations of livestock farming here in Australia. Mm. But I clearly, from the discussion we've just had, didn't grow up, you know, crutching sheep. And, um, but I always loved, really, truly loved. It's not a, not a construct. I absolutely love that we would come back and have holidays, spend summers um, on the farm. And I'd kind of help out where I could and try to not, try to not make too much of a mess. And so when my father got sick, um, had cancer. And so he was, you know, undergoing treatment and, and a lot of the decisions about our farming business fell to me. And you know, we were fortunate enough uh, to have an operation that was big enough that we had advisors and consultants kind of gathered around the table, giving me a lot of advice. And, and, and these were very clever people that were steeped in industry history. And, um, but uh, a lot of their advice, and you used the word hocus pocus before, I'll, I'll challenge that. I don't think it was hocus pocus. It was just based off of anecdote and experience and, you know, what worked well in, you know, a proximity, a, a close by farm or a proximity that was, that was close to what the situation we were dealing with. And that was the thing that I found really incongruent. That was the thing where, exactly as you mentioned, like, how do I make order of this? Because that doesn't appear to me to be scalable, to be testable, to be, you know, to drive confidence in if I am going to make this financial decision on this farm to spend money on pasture improvement, which, you know, maybe the changing the type of grass seed that we would plant, like, does that statistically lead to a higher yield of grass in that pasture? Therefore, will it be a profitable business decision? Now, some of this stuff is, is, you know, data-driven in the anecdotal sense for generations. But what I wanted was, why isn't there a database that I can go to to check that and to validate that? And why isn't it readily available in the context of my own business, my own farm? And that, I think, was the 
with a real kernel of, hang on, there's an opportunity here to have all of this information gathered so that we can fundamentally make you know, long-term robust decisions about our expenses, our investment, um, and our driver on the, on the farm. And how deep did you dive into that initially? Did you say, okay, I'm just going to build this little tool, this system that is going to help me personally? And then you were like, okay, this has obviously got application for other farmers or, or landowners. Or was it as simple as uh, this is a business and I have to do this? No, I, I mean, look, the, the I could neatly package it up as sometimes sometimes you know we do on stage at like an interview we cut the, cut to the chase and go yeah yeah that's why we realised it was a global opportunity and actually I I really often tease my uh, co-founder uh, Kevin he's American and um, I like to say he Americanized the problem like yeah sure I I could see the opportunity across different farms in Australia but he like well this is a global problem and he wanted to make it bigger and massive and and you know. Thank goodness he did. Um, but uh, it's much more messy than that. And, and and perhaps again for those who are listening, like you know, they're thinking about or going through startups who are you know head in hand, being like, goodness me, this is a nightmare. I, we started. We yes, we thought, how do we gather this data, and how do we create this platform that gathers data? But then at the same time, we went, farmers aren't going to aren't going to do that. They're not going to wander around with their smartphone typing in data. So. Let's find something that they do do. And, you know, a lot of farmers wake up and go drive around and check their troughs for water. So we thought, oh, let's do that. And then we also looked at the other end and we went, hang on, why does a farmer, when they want to sell their animals, like have a livestock agent and then put them on a, stick their animals on a truck, they go to a sale yard, they get nervous, they lose weight, you know, the animal husbandry is not as good. And then they pay kind of, you know, 10% between the agent, the sale yard, all of these fees. That, that's crazy. And this was, you know, really at the uptick of Amazon and um, eBay and, and the world was waking up to online e-commerce. Mm. And and so what we recognized was it wasn't like buying a T-shirt. You, you know, you, you do want to know the history of what's happened to that animal. Therefore, you want the data. And therefore, we need to have some kind of hook to hook users into using this data. So where I'm getting at is we tried to build the whole thing, which is crazy. Like, so we were going to be a hardware company and then a SaaS company and then an online marketplace. (laughs) And, and yeah, cool. Should we raise a billion for our seed round? (laughs) And, and, you know, we made a lot of mistakes in that, in those early days. And, and what we were able to do was pivot quickly and go, you know, we, we don't have to build the trough sensors, the water sensors, in order to get people to track their information. They want to track their information anyway. And similarly, like we don't need to build this livestock, you know, online auctions place because there are other people that are building that. And so oh, yeah. what we could do is make that business better. And so I think that was something that really, you know, drove the the focus in our business was understanding that we can look at everything and there's a massive opportunity, but how do we pick the game that we're going to play in and then, right, realize that that game that we're going to play in isn't actually that much of a niche, right? It's a trillion dollar market beef production globally. And so if we do build this, we need to leverage the you know best in class of like SaaS, businesses, Salesforce, Zendesk, Slack, et cetera, to, to leverage, you know, where they have forged and then adapted across to this industry. And that initial go-to market, when you realize that product fit, when you realize that primarily it was a SaaS business and, and tool that helped people make decisions, 
when did you notice that that started to click and, and what was it? Was it employing people under Salesforce? Was it selling to farmers directly yourselves at first? When yeah. that sort of click? There was a lot of, you know, dirt shuffling uh, in, in shearing sheds. Uh, and when I say a lot, like 18 months of it, really, really understanding, like, you know, what, what are the problems that they were trying to solve? And I touched on sort of inspiration, perhaps, even in the negative sense of what not to do from, from say, the world of finance or other areas. And the values that AgriWeb's built on, and these aren't just like a plaque that we stick on the wall. Like we genuinely like to actually live this. Like we, we live for the farmer. You'll ask anyone here, they probably forget all the other values, but the main one is we live for the farmer. We've got others about being impactful innovators and having integrity, but living for the farmer. And what does that mean? It, it does mean we have to look and do and before we ask, like actually go and experience what it is they do on a daily basis and why technology can, can help, if not improve that experience. And that took a lot, <laughs> a lot before we had, you know, this, the elusive, the, the wonderful, the praised product market fit. And I still think, right, we have product market fit, kind of, like, yeah, we do because we've got scale and, and there's a lot of people that are happy, but not every customer is the same. And so as we expand in concentric circles around the perfect product market fit for one customer, we have to understand and categorize and innovate feature development for a slightly different customer or a different geography or, you know, a different farming style. So absolutely, like, the, I think the, the journey to, to this, this kind of realization of product market fit starts with living for your customer and living in their lives and then understanding how technology can have a beneficial impact on what they're trying to do. Hmm. Yeah, it was it was very interesting how much I fell into little things like Sheep Innovation Day on the <laughs> web, website. It's it's genuinely fascinating. I've always watched uh, it, when I see it pop up, like landline, uh, simply because my on on the sort of Anglo-Saxon side of the family, I, both my wife and I are you know Anglo-European, so one side is European and one side is basically from the UK in some sense, and on mum's side uh you know they've got that sort of longevity gene and they all live in the sort of regional areas gippsland in particular and so we always chat about landline and i was always intrigued by these tools because we've got a friend who lives in gippsland and he grew up in moorabbin here in uh sort of southeastern suburbs melbourne built like a little mini hobby farm in his backyard that he would sell things from and then just sold it all and moved to Gippsland. And now he's got two, 300 head of cattle. And he's sort of like that new generation that, you know, when, when we go over there, he's got an iPad with all like his rain metrics and the grasses and all that sort of stuff across the farm. And so I was always intrigued by that. Um, I don't know what it was. I think it's just because what you would have realized at the time getting into this space is that it was a world that wasn't really digitized and now it's becoming so. And I, I was just genuinely intrigued with, with the tools that you have at AgriWeb, what's been the benefits from a, an efficiency point of view for farmers, particularly amongst livestock and the environment themselves. Because the way that my friend explained it to me is he understands more about the animals than he, than he ever has, but also 
about the things that truly matter is his inputs like grass growth and rainfall and all these sort of things that before you'd be like, oh, well, the weather report says this, but there's no rain here. And, you know, like it's all sort of all like uh, just guesswork, but now he has the actual data. So I guess when you see that over hundreds or thousands of farms, what what have you seen as like the the real tightening of of data and insights across the cohort? So I love that story. Thank you um, for you know, for sharing it because I, there's there's so much in that, right? One, I I, I find it hilarious uh, when guys and girls in our engineering team will say things, you know, be having a, a, a an intense discussion about how they best, you know, um, engineer the tracking of bull semen or, or, or say things like fecal egg count. And I always, I always sort of call them out. And I'm like, God, didn't you always you know, like imagine your career one day you'd be, you'd be building, building complex engineering around uh, fecal egg count. But at the grassroots, um, pun intended, the application, you used a phrase there that, that I think is really key. It's the digitization. So there's this misnomer um, and misconception that farming is not data-driven. It's absolutely data-driven. It's just been data-driven. You know, the the medium through which that data has been tracked has been experience and anecdotal mm. stories of, of multi-generation, right? Every farmer has the notebook in their top pocket that they track their, their stuff. It is definitely data-driven. It just hasn't been digitized. And I think that is the thing of when you start to digitize the unit of production, the farm, the animal, the plant, then you start to, you know, start to draw on concepts that, that aren't that different from the study of the universe and Stephen mm. Hawking, right? I study the very small to solve the very big. And, and the reason why digitization hasn't happened at that base unit of the animal or the plant or the farm is because it's very fragmented. And so therefore it's very tricky to build a business and build it to scale across that, you know, that multiplicity of, of, of base unit. But what you are solving and let it be no, you know, let there be no misconception here. What you're solving fundamentally is for the productivity of the production of food. And we have a Malthusian trap, right? We have a, we produce less food than there are people on the earth to consume, right? So we need to produce more food and we've got population that's going to get to 10 billion by 2050. So we've got to feed them and we've got no more land to do it on because we already cultivate 50% of the earth's surface for agriculture. Oh, and by the way, agriculture is doing a really bad job of having an impact on, you know, warming the planet. And so we need to do it more efficiently. So that's a productivity problem, right? And productivity problems are best solved by what? By technology yeah. and by, de- by the application of data. And so what I think you're doing is improving productivity at the base unit, right? At the plant, at the animal, in order to drive a great result for the farmer because the farm becomes more productive, becomes more profitable, hopefully becomes you know, more sustainable for multi-generational you know, existence of farming. And then at the big level, you're starting to have more information and data about the food, which means that consumers can actually demand more about their, where their food came from, what its impact is, you know, what, how it was raised, was it sustainable, et cetera. And I'm sure you know, we can get into that, that carbon footprint in a second. But finally, 
you're getting to as a global level, like what is happening in our supply chain and is it becoming more productive and more efficient so that we can feed all of these mouths and we can you know, bring the end to starvation. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that is not, it's not too difficult a kind of mission to draw from, but it has to be done from that, that kernel denominator at the beginning, which is the animal and the plant. Well, it's so funny you mentioned that because that efficiency and more so the uncovering of what, how you get to that efficiency, I reckon really started about 10 years ago. So just before you would have founded the business and people like Joel Salatin who talk about, um, uh, they call, I don't know if he's termed it holistic husbandry or holistic farming, but basically it was the insight that your primary input that affected your output was the capture of carbon and particularly around grasses for someone who is a, a beef farmer. Oh, this was something that he realized and he could actually show what it did to the land that the farmer worked on, whether it was through erosion um, by having animals just in one pen at one time, like for the entire time of their life or, or a few little pens as opposed to roaming around in multiple pens um, and what that did to the grass. And for me, that is what tools like yours will do over the coming years, which will make things more efficient down the line, which is. Yeah. Impressive. I mean, I think that people don't really, it's not widely held knowledge. So to explain it super quickly is like what's called regenerative grazing and carbon yeah. sequestration. So animal rearing, particularly beef is responsible for, you know, somewhere between nine and 12% of all greenhouse emissions. Uh, and so that's a lot. <laughs> and if in fact cows were a country, they would be third behind China and the United States in terms of emission. So obviously they're being you know, vilified and the production systems are, are being you know, demanded to become more efficient. And indeed people's tastes and attitudes to eating meat in generally have been shifting as a result. However, the education piece that's really interesting is carbon sequestration means capturing carbon from the atmosphere into plants, in this case, grass, as the grass regenerates, right? When grass is eaten by the animals, it's eaten down um, from whatever it is, you know, uh, 10 centimeters to three centimeters. And the act of regrowing that grass captures carbon and, and sequesters it and, and, uh, into the soil. And uh, the amount of carbon that is emitted by the animal uh, through methane, through the gastric, um, you know, either burps or farts, um, is less than the amount of carbon that is sequestered by the plant. So long as you efficiently rotate the animals through yeah. the, that grass, I, you basically have to maintain the eat versus regrow between a certain length because it is at that peak rate of growth for the plant that it, it maximizes its carbon sequestration. Yeah. So what do I mean by this, all this, you know, blah? Well, it means that unlike any other industry that talks about reducing its carbon footprint, the beef production industry can realistically become not just carbon neutral, it can become net carbon negative. Yeah. So in terms of sustainability, we've got the opportunity to take one of the biggest offenders and actually turn it into a net negative, a carbon sink that can be offset for other industries. Yeah. And I think that's awesome. Like mm. conceptually, that's amazing. 
like you can't take air travel and suddenly be like, yeah, it's going to be a carbon sink or even motor cars. Like that doesn't happen. But even so, with, even if you compare it to other forms of farming, you can't even re, you can't do it as easily as say with grain farming or, or other, or other form, forms of, that's what I found so interesting when I learned about this is, you know, the argument against cattle farming um, in, you know, with the pros for uh, grain seeds and other forms that are not animal based is actually is is just wrong you know and and that animal farming does have a slight advantage if done right yes i I think it's it's i look there are lots of opinions i wouldn't necessarily stand and advocate for or against like yeah you know we've got to have you know uh synthetic meat or um you know, uh, alternative meat products and that's the only thing or, or we've got to have, no, that's all, you know, rubbish and we've got to stick with the traditional way. I actually think we need to feed the world. And so all of these different advents uh, the, or the, the realization and commercialization of different forms of protein are great. And we should all stand alongside that. Um, and, and I don't just mean that from the kind of a, a mealy mouth way. I really do believe that. Like I'm good friends with George at Vox, and I think he's doing some awesome stuff to create, um, you know, to create impossible meats here in Australia. And so, uh, and I wish him every success. The the thing that I do recognise though is that the practical nature of of protein production and the rising middle incomes in, in China and India are demanding animal protein. We also recognize like the, the science is still heavily out and in favor of animal proteins have been largely re- responsible for, the consumption of animal proteins have been largely responsible for the evolution of Homo sapiens as a species. Mm-hmm. Right? They, they, we created bigger, more complex brains and, uh, and, and our ability to have um, interaction between the chemicals in our bodies were largely because including our immune system, which is in focus at the moment, have come from the consumption of animal proteins. So I do believe that there is a, there will forever be a place for consumption of animal protein. So therefore I find it my mission and my responsibility to create the most sustainable and efficient production of that possible. Mm. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. And I, I think, um, it's a very interesting space. And I think you and I probably have the same realization of um, the advantages of the sort of agriculture space in particular um, over things like manufactured meats. But um, I guess we'll see. We'll see in the next few years what happens. But I've always said that farmers should have tax incentives to sequester more carbon. Um, and it should be more of an emphasis because I think they could really have a major impact. Um, and that's just through learning through my friend in Gippsland. You know, he he was the one who really informed me about this stuff, and he's just a guy in Gippsland. So it just <laughs> makes you it just makes you think like, well, what would happen if that whole region and then that whole state, um, the people who produce the food, fully understood that and were educated about that? So, well, I, I, I will do a bit of a shout out here, Bruce Pascoe and Darky Mew, and you know, a lot of recognition of of Aboriginal. Um, heritage here in Australia, more and more we're realizing that the Aboriginal cultures um, were were practicing rotational grazing across you know uh, across Australian landscapes with mm. you know original Aussie grasses for you know thousands if not tens of thousands of years, and and so there is a you know there is a lot to be learned and adapted and and, and reproduced from uh, from those 
frankly, sustainable practices. So it, it's not necessarily, and, and this isn't just, you know, it's not just drawing on 40,000 years or 60,000 years of history uh, from, from Aboriginal culture. It's also, you know, in Western Europe, uh, the, uh, in Africa, in, in Latin America, in, in North America, but the, the, the cultivation through different areas of agriculture pre, you know, synthetic fertilizer was rotational grazing. They recognized that soil health was critically important by having rotational pastures that then alternated, you know, the cultivation of, of animals, of livestock that led to the best result of crops year after year and the best result of animals year after year. And so I think it's sort of same but different. We're almost at a reversion, but recognizing if you revert with the, with the aid of technology, you can have a more productive farm. Um, and it's a little bit like sustainable investing that in the finance space, they used to be like, well, you know, it'll be a bit of a drawdown. You'll have worse performance, but you'll feel better because you've invested in stuff. Well, actually, more and more, it's showing that if you do have, you know, a sustainable angle, you've got, you invest in companies that, you know, are more conscious of, um, societal differences of that they're more aware of, of advancing minorities of diversity of opinion blah, blah 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 all these things lead to a more robust investment return and i think that's also something that we want to drive through the farming world which is hey we're not saying do regenerative grazing because it feels warm and fuzzy we're saying do it because you will have a better yeah. farm and you will produce more and let us help you and frankly let us subsidize that to, to help you realize it because there's so many positive externalities. Um, so I think that's part of the, the piece of, in all of this is, is education and, and driving. Before we jump into the, to the rapid fire questions, I've got to ask you about Australian trading culture and how that affects geopolitics. I know you're, uh, you're quite a fan. <laughs> so just of, a small, small question then. <laughs> small question. I know you're a big fan of uh, geopolitics, uh, particularly the Australian American Association, the Lowy Institute. I think we've always been quite a mercantile nation just by the nature of what we do and what we can do well here. Agriculture is a major, major part of that. And there's obviously been a big shift due to COVID around supply chains. We've, we've had guests that have spoken specifically to that when it comes to manufacturing, but I guess I'm curious from an agriculture point of view, where do you sort of see, start to see the future of Australia geopolitically? Does it shift further away from uh, China or does it remain the same? Does it double down on Asia um, or the Indian subcontinent? Where, where do you sort of see the, the headwinds and tailwinds? Yeah, um, well, clearly just a layup of a question. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, no, I think Australia is the lucky country, right? My grandfather used to say and use a, you know, it's not his, but uh, he used to often use the phrase, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. So I, I think that Australia has gone through some extraordinarily fortuitous confluences in, in geopolitical and economic uh, times, right? The global financial crisis happened and really the Aussie banking industry wasn't sophisticated enough to be indulging in all of that, you know, <laughs> very advanced kind of creation of, of you know, leveraged products and so therefore it largely was insulated it also concurrently was happened to be one of the greatest investments in in history into infrastructure that was fueled by 
iron ore and steel that happened to be dug out of Aussie, Aussie dirt and shipped up to China. Prior to that, you know, you can draw a fair few, fair few elements in history. The gold rush, right? Ballarat became the, the highest per capita income place in the world. And uh, much, of, much of Chinese um, dynasties were actually built off the back of that gold rush. And then the agricultural rush and the merino wool. And <laughs> right? you can keep going through this. And then uh, I think that um, we have been very lucky um, because I think there's been an element of preparation has met opportunity. Uh, we've, you know, we've had forward thinkers that have built infrastructure that allowed us to take advantage of. Sure, they've made a lot of money. Twiggy Forrest became a billionaire because he saw the potential of building his own railway line and and servicing that mining boom. But I think that we also right now are in a genuine danger of running out of the luck because we're running out of preparation. There's plenty of opportunity, but I wonder whether we are truly preparing for the inevitable shift of geopolitical and economic growth that, you know, the United States will not be the world's largest economy in 50 or 100 years. So therefore, we kind of resiliently cling to our friendship there in order to, you know, to maintain what we believe was, you know, a historically secure relationship. But I think that there's the opportunity to make great relationships with Asia, with India, with the growing economies. I mean, Indonesia has 300 million people and it's on our, on our doorstep. So it's not just China, but it's all of, of Asia that sits there. That, and, and Asia is not a, a uh, you know, homogenous place. They're vastly different opinions and approaches to geopolitical futures. So, you know, summing all this together, I think our preparation should be, should be to make and to outreach to our Asian neighbors uh, and uh, both, you know, right the way through the subcontinent and into Asia to make better, uh, you know, engagements commercially with them so that we can trade not just goods and services, not just dirt, but also technology, also innovation, also social uh, social delivery, uh, all of these different factors that we can be beyond, you know, beautiful beaches and, and a wonderful place to be just to buy houses. And that to me, we can continue to be the lucky country if we continue to make sure that our preparation does meet the opportunity of the next half century. So you see preparation primarily at the moment as outreach and relationship building. And investment into technology development, mm. investment into uh, like the, the more of us as a services economy, more of us as, as the ability to, to innovate here in Australia. I mean, there are so many examples here of having world leading technologies, but we don't, we haven't done nearly as good a job as commercializing those, right? Wi-Fi being a great, Example, like no longer are we just the land of the rotary washing line. Like we've got this, we've, we've got some extraordinary innovation and companies and, and some, some areas, frankly, of competitive advantage that are unfair to the rest of the world. So agriculture being one of them, but one of the most diverse agricultural landscapes. We can go from rainforest to desert in the space of three, four hours, and we're still in the same place under the same legal jurisdiction and under the same pioneering approach. And now that's, that's a competitive advantage. Mm. Um, and so we should be, you know, leveraging that and then delivering that insight to these countries that frankly are in need of where is the overpopulation, you know, most dense 
it's it's in India, it's in Asia, and it's it's in those countries where we can actually help deliver innovation, where they are primarily an agrarian economy. And so, gee, it just so happens we really understand how to make agriculture more efficient. Can we help you with that? So I think, and that, that's not just selling our meat to them or our grain to them. It's also fundamentally, you know, teach a man to fish. And I think that's, that's something that we, that's what I mean by preparation meets opportunity because otherwise someone else is going to do it. Just on that quickly, do you know of any, like I'm always impressed by how in Amsterdam or sorry, the Netherlands, they have really built out um, uh, an agricultural system via amazing research um and their their university there i can't remember the name of it but you would come to mind probably for yourself but is there one that exists or comes to mind here in australia that really leads the way um yeah i mean look whether it's leiden or rotterdam um um and utrecht in in the, the netherlands they they really have you know built a wonderful brand in certain segments, right, in agriculture there, in particular, you know, greenhouse and vertical farming and, and et cetera. Um, equally, Israel has, has built a wonderful brand on water management. And, um, you know, both of those kind of come from necessity. <laughs> they don't have much <laughs> land. They certainly don't have much mountain. So they've got to, they've got to really be efficient in growing, uh, well, so many mountains rather in Holland and, and, uh, and not much water in, in Israel. Um, and they've had to you know, innovate as, as a necessity. Um, I think that in Australia, right, some of the leading universities don't have to just be agricultural universities. Sure, Marcus Oldham is doing a great job in, in Victoria and, um, and UNE is doing a great job in New South Wales and University of Queensland. Oh, there are great examples that, that I can lead off with from with a focus on agriculture, but right the way through our innovative research capabilities, whether it's the CSIRO, whether it's RDCs, um, you know, whether it is you know, producer-led, I think that there's there's this opportunity not just to go, ah, oh, it's the it's the responsibility of an agricultural university to innovate the agriculture. It, any, yeah. Anyone that's standing in a paddock that's having a problem can innovate. So let's nurture that and again, prepare to leverage that opportunity. Mm. All right. We're going to jump into rapid fire questions to finish things off. Uh, morning and evening routine. What's that look like at the moment? Well, I've got a two-year-old and a four-year-old. So yeah, okay. up to you where my morning starts. Like, <laughs> So <laughs> let's assume that I've already been up like two or three times through the night and, and whether, whether it's <laughs> my, my, whether the elbow comes from my wife uh, or it's vice versa, for, depending on whose turn it is. So let's see, fast forward to sort of six or seven. Um, I'm up and, and looking after the kids. I try to jump on the Peloton, which um, uh, is, is actually been a lifesaver during COVID um, and, and all the ergo uh, where I put up embarrassing scores that I'm sure you know, the Winklevi and others would still laugh at. Um, and, um, and then fast forward to the other end of the day, like I've got both morning and evening, I'll, I'll have to get on calls, um, you know, morning with the United States, evening with the UK, uh, because now we're running a global business. So the one thing I try to do is leave the office at five, go home and do bath, bed, read a story, actually spend time engaging without phone with my children and with my wife and with my family, because that's, that's important. <laughs> and then, you know, um, round about eight, nine, jump back on calls and try to, you know, hit the sack. If you were to think about a uh, purchase under $200 in the last couple of years, that's had 
the best impact on your life? Is there anything that comes to mind? Yeah, my um, my RMs. Although I'm not sure they're <laughs> under two hundred bucks. Um, I think they, uh, depending on when, I, I feel like I bought a pair a year or two ago. And um, seriously, like it is a bit cliche, but it is one of the best purchases of shoes you can make. I, I I'm rarely out of them, and so call me a pit streak farmer, but. Um, they, they are just awesome. And um, that's, that's what I'm going to go with. And maybe that's pre LVMH takeover buyout or Twiggy buying it back, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's uh, I am. Gl- I am somewhat glad that he bought, bought them back. Cause um, all right, there's something about having that brand Australian in some way. I don't know what it yeah. is. All right. Last question for you. If you could have a billboard anywhere in Australia, so placement is often key. Where would it be, first of all? And what would you put on it? Good question. Uh, <laughs> um, I think if I was going to have a billboard anywhere, why not have it on South Head okay. in Sydney? Um, just and, and I always think of this, uh, very cheesy, but I, I, I do love, um, you know, both I still call Australia home um, and and um, even the it's bad enough that my my wife and I had the the current Qantas theme song I can't remember what it is um, um, feels like home to me um, that was actually sung at our wedding because we do so much travel that it, it's nice to actually come back and, and see <laughs> each other so I think that I think it would say welcome home um, be on South Head and it would say welcome home yeah, there there is something about that. I think uh, from a brand perspective, being in the uh, the advertising space, I think Qantas has just tapped into that so well, and it's yeah, it's it's always fascinating to me whenever I hear that song. And I would hope drama. actually, you know, I, there's a I'm reading through a great book at the moment called Luckies. Um, it's it's by a really it's a debut novel by by a fun author, and and it talks a lot about you know. Uh, migration to Australia. We, you know, we're ultimately a culture of of, of migrants, aside from the Aboriginals here. And so, um, I think it's hopefully it should say "Welcome home," right? And, and we should be encouraging a lot of that uh, welcoming of of migration into Australia. Hopefully, you know, the borders open soon, and, and and we can be open for business because again, there's a wonderful opportunity. We're we're certainly not overpopulated, and um, and wouldn't it be awesome to to, to be that welcoming, um, you know, be that new Statue of Liberty to be able to welcome people in uh, who are who are looking to have a crack. It looks like an interesting book as well, too, coming from a Greek background. Um, I yeah, just got given this a, book. It's a really the, fun read. I just got given this book. Actually, it's uh, like the history of Greek migrants in Australia from a, a researcher who was doing some stuff on our family. But um, it looks pretty good. Andrew Pippos Lucky's yeah, book. We'll make sure we link a, that. It's, I'll link that in and, and, and it's, it's probably lighter than the one that you were given. Yeah, it's a bit very, more fun. Very much so. Um, yeah, that was a big book. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a great read. Um, Justin, thank you for coming on the show. Where can people find you on the interwebs? On the interwebs, look, um, if there's any, if I have a, an ask from all this, if any of you that are listening have been actually inspired by uh, the mission that we're on, um, we are recruiting and we're recruiting heavily. Um, we, we, we hired, uh, 19 people, um, in the past two months. Um, we're wow. expanding here, the United States, the UK, um, we've got footprints, people on ground in, in South Africa, Brazil. So, you know, 
come to us with, if, if you're inspired by this mission, if you want to you know, feed the world, deliver protein more sustainably, then please, please reach out at www.agriweb.com. Um, yes, I'm lame enough that it's AgriWeb with two Bs um, <laughs> because that's my last name. But um, beyond that, uh, I think it's a pretty awesome place to work. And, and I would, would really love to hear from any of you that are inspired to rip into this. There's a few, um, if people want to check that out, it's agrib.com slash au slash careers. Looks like you've got a few positions there. Um, yeah. <laughs> quite a few actually. Um, but yeah, Justin, thank you for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure having you on. Absolutely. Couldn't have enjoyed it more. Thank you so much for the you know, really relaxed chat. And uh, I hope you and others found it interesting. We'd love awesome. to come around again. Thanks, mate. Thanks, mate. Thank you so much for checking out this episode. If you do like it, please subscribe. And of course, like if you're watching the YouTube video as well. Uh, We'd really appreciate that. You can also find our Clips channel in the description. For audio, if you're not already listening, you can search Uncommon on Podcast, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts quite easily. For video, if you're not watching, you can search Uncommon on YouTube. And for behind-the-scenes takes and clips uh, on social media, then definitely check out at Uncommon underscore show on Instagram. But otherwise, look, thanks so much for tuning in. And until next time, thanks for listening.